Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. It is week 30, mostly working from home, and a common thread to the week, Jason, of course, the virus. And whether or not more relief in the way of stimulus was coming or not, that guided the trade in the financial markets. It also guided the trade when it came to one stock. We're talking about Eli Lilly. Absolutely. You know, that company coming out with an antibody treatment, putting it up for FDA emergency approval. We caught up with the CEO of Lilly, David Ricks, on what his company is working on, where he expected to be, and where the broader pharmaceutical industry is in fighting the virus. Plus, we need solutions that are larger than the problems that we seek. Operation Hope founder and chief executive officer John Hope Bryan on the plight of America's middle class, particularly for people of color. And SAG-AFTRA President Gabrielle Carteris, you know her from 90210. (laughs) She leads the massive union that's trying to get its folks back to work in TV and film. But first, let's go to the cover story. A White House COVID outbreak is America's pandemic failure in microcosm. That's right, Jason. They're the remarks. They're written by Rob Langreth, who is healthcare reporter. Earlier this year, he wrote another cover story about remdesivir. And this week, as you said, he's taking a deep dive into the White House COVID outbreak. We got more from Rob and Bloomberg Business Week editor, Joel Weber. Everything basically started a week ago when uh, Jennifer Jacobs' um, wonderful uh, DC-based White House uh, reporter for Bloomberg News actually broke that Hope Picks had it had tested positive. And then, um, you know, basically a bunch of chaos started to ensue. And, you know, within a couple hours, um, uh, we had a positive confirmation that uh, President Trump had tested positive. And then we just started to watch more and more uh, people close to the president come down. Um, And so we turned to Bob because, you know, there's a political story there, to be sure. But, you know, the one that really stood out to us was this, uh, the the health side of it, right? And the science side of it and the disease side of it. And all of those things are things that Bob knows um, incredibly well. And, uh, you know, this disease, as he points out in this remarks, makes no exception of anybody. It does not care what your stature is, like what, what what, what country you're president of. It is just ruthless and relentless. Um, and I think we've learned a little bit along the way. And, and Bob, like, I, I wouldn't mind actually just kind of opening up with that question. Like, what did, what did you learn um, over the past week about COVID? Well, I mean, it just it emphasizes just very clearly how, how infectious and how easily this spreads and how tricky a virus this is. Because what happens is, is that people are very contagious often a couple days before they get any, any symptoms. That's one of the peak contagious periods. So a lot of the spread occurs before people have symptoms, symptoms at all. And that is may, and that, that may, may be something that happened in the White House. And that's, you know, different from uh, some other diseases like SARS or most of the spread occurred when people had symptoms. So what the White House did, and this is kind of emblematic of the whole way uh, the administration has approached this pandemic, they kind of relied on kind of a single silver bullet uh, quick fix or relying on a, a kind of an Abbott Laboratories rapid test, uh, which is a perfectly good test, uh, but if you use it correctly, but it's really supposed to be used for people with symptoms to confirm a diagnosis and get them isolate them as soon as possible. It's not supposed to be used as the sole line of defense to you know, to keep to allow you to do crowded events without masking and social distancing, and that's what the White House is doing again and again. And and the problem with that strategy: you get one case slips through, one false po- false negative, and you have a super spreader event, and that's sure what appears to have happened. 
Yeah, and Bob, I mean, it, it really is amazing because I feel like all of us, even those of us who you know aren't president or don't work at the White House, have been putting maybe too much emphasis or too much hope on this idea of like, well, what if I could just get a rapid test and then I could go to work or then I could go to a game or then I could get on a plane or whatever it is. It's trickier than that, right? Right. So the tests are very good and they're useful. Uh, and they're, they are part of the you know part of the strategy, but they're not like a, you know a, a solution for everything just in isolation because they're just a moment of time. And what will happen is you get infected with the coronavirus, and then there's an incubation period. Not much is happening, and so you've been infected. There's a tiny bit of virus and starting to grow and grow, and you don't test positive. You know. Uh, you know, for several days, necessarily. And, you know, so you could have a rapid test in the morning. It says you're negative, but you could be infecting people in the afternoon, and then you're infected a bunch of people, and then, like, a day or so later, the test turns positive, but it's too late. Bob, we learned a little bit about um, how a, a, a certain course of treatments can go if um, you're the president of the United States, I suppose. Uh, what what are doctors and and others um, scientists, uh, people in pharma? What 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 are people saying about sort of the course of treatments that uh, President Trump was put on? Because that's not something that uh, the rest of us probably have access to. Right. I mean, he may have been like the only one of the only people in the world to get this kind of combination of three treatments, including this one totally experimental one from Regeneron. Uh, you know, in such a rapid rapid time frame. He got this on a, quote, compassionate use basis. He got this experimental antibody cocktail from Regeneron, of which they have, you know, they're applying for authorization, but they have, you know, very few doses of. So most people couldn't get that. And then he quickly you know, was moved, uh, airlifted via the White House helicopters to Walter Reed Medical Center, uh, where he got remdesivir, which is a standard uh, hospital treatment. That's the Gilead drug, drug we were the cover story on before. And he, you know, got that right away. And, uh, and, the, and uh, you know, after he, he, you know, he was having some you know, breathing difficulties on Friday. And then, uh, like the next day, they put him on a steroid, dexamethasone, and uh, after he had another bout of breathing difficulty. And that is a drug uh, that's basically mostly uh, usually used for severe cases, uh, which, you know, suggests to a lot to doctors and some people that, you know, the, the, the White House doctors may have been much more worried about Trump than they've, you know, let on. The fact that they put him on this third drug that's really for severe cases. And that was Bloomberg News healthcare reporter Robert Langreth and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Coming up, Jason, as the cases connected to the White House continue to add up, a new addition to treating the virus was made public by drug maker Eli Lilly. We talk with that company's CEO, David Ricks. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, there were a few important developments when it came to COVID-19 this week. One came from Eli Lilly asking U.S. drug regulators to authorize emergency use of its experimental COVID-19 antibody therapy. That after some data showed the treatment reduced hospitalizations. This was a big deal. Absolutely. We caught up with the CEO of Eli Lilly, David Ricks. We've submitted a request for an emergency use authorization. That's the um, vehicle that you can use in the pandemic to get a quick approval um, without the normal full data package, but having proof of safety and efficacy. We're doing that on the on the monotherapy, the single uh, antibody. And then we also disclosed new data on the combination, which also is shown to be quite effective and safe. And we're saying we're going to submit that over the coming weeks. We want to accumulate a few more patients on it to, to prove the safety. 
based on decisions made months ago to manufacture at risk, we would expect to have something like a million doses available this fall of the monotherapy, the single one that we're submitting for today. So that's a big number of doses and could help a lot of people. We want that to go to work uh, here in the U.S. and around the world to arrest the worst consequences of the virus. Right. So so let's talk about how that gets out there, because that clearly is a key question. You know, we're all so focused on all the different things that we can throw at this, but ultimately you got to get it to people. How do you do that? What's the mechanism by which this all works, Dave? Right. So in, the, in this emergency situation, we're not going to follow normal business course. What we're doing is partnering with governments and here in the U.S. with the Operation Warp Speed effort um, and the DOD, which is in charge of procurement during the pandemic, and similar mechanisms in, in um, other markets. And the reason we're doing that is we know we don't have enough material to meet 100% of the demand. And what we don't want is the product to either sit idle, uh, be hoarded, or um, go to the wrong patients who don't have the greatest benefit. So we're partnering with governments to ensure a good allocation. And then um, also we want to partner with governments to reduce patient out-of-pocket costs to zero or something very close to zero. Uh, Most of the developed world has already announced those kinds of programs, and so by working with governments, we can ensure that uh, cost is not a barrier. Hey, one thing I'm wondering, Dave, is how much of what happened to President Trump and his getting multiple treatments, um, different types of treatments, had to do with your news today and bringing that monotherapy out sooner rather than later or waiting for the cocktail? Well, for us, uh, this this date was on the calendar long ago. Um, the data locked on some of these studies just yesterday. And we've been working with the uh, career scientific professionals at the FDA you know, kind of hand in glove for the last four or five months to get to this point. Um, we the data matured, and we thought it was appropriate to request a submission at this uh, for for an emergency use authorization at this time. That was in motion well before the news from last week. Of course, um, we're all we've all learned in society more about antibody therapy and their utility, and that's probably a good thing to raise the awareness. Um, so that you know, maybe seems beneficial in the moment, but this this was preordained some time ago in terms of when we'd be pushing forward for the use. Well, and and in some ways, building on on what Carol was talking about in terms of what we saw with the president, obviously, that's one patient, and he's a special patient in in many ways. But I do think people are trying to understand, and maybe you can help us understand, what – What's the effective way or what do we know about this virus in terms of what we need to throw at it when? And what do we need to be yeah. taking and thinking about is as individuals, especially since this is, as I understand it, at least sort of a bridge to a vaccine, right? Like, so as a as just a normal guy, like, how should I be thinking of a drug like this? Yeah, this is it's a very important question. We're studying this medicine in three settings. Uh, one is the one we announced today, which is. Um, patients who are newly diagnosed, the so-called mild to moderate, um, that's their current state. But a, a portion of the patients, and it's hard to predict which ones, but we, we think age and obesity are two contributing factors. A portion of those patients never uh, resolve the virus themselves or have a struggle to do it. And so by giving uh, early, particularly in those high-risk patients who are over 65 and have what's called the body mass index over 35, which is the definition of clinical obesity, that they can benefit by avoiding hospitalization. And what the, this medicine does is it knocks down the virus 
Mm. It kind of gives your body a jump start on its own immune response. And so that patients um, don't get into this challenge where the virus is spreading faster than they can conquer it. It's sort of a turbocharger for your own immune system. That's uh, an appropriate place, we believe. That's why we've pushed for the emergency use authorization. But we're also studying it earlier in disease in what's called primary prophylaxis, where um, we're actually doing a study in nursing homes, where we know the tragedy in nursing homes in this country of 40% of all deaths due to COVID-19 happen in nursing homes. Mm -hmm. And in these these, um, settings where people are close together, all very high risk, the disease spreads quickly and with horrible consequences. So what we're doing is a study where if there's one infection in a home, we swoop in, we actually retrofitted RVs uh, to be mobile research units, we swoop in, we, we treat everyone with the antibodies, and then we watch, like yeah. a vaccine study, to see if we can knock down the reinfection rate and spreading of infection in a home. And then finally, there's a big study going along with NIH in hospitalized patients. But the general theory here would be earlier better for this kind of medication. You know, Dave, one of the things, and we were kind of kicking this around in our newsroom, um, and certainly with our healthcare team that's been covering um, the virus day in and day out, nonstop, you know, I think one of the questions came up, like, why focus on making the low dose if it's the middle dose or the cocktail that has better results in the trial? Well, I think that was the headline from the first um, study we announced two weeks ago, that the middle dose hit the primary endpoint. We showed all the data today because we wanted to make a point that probably that was just by chance, that the primary endpoint we chose, which was the day 11 average viral load reduction, was not a, a informed choice when we, when we made it. We mm-hmm. probably wouldn't choose that endpoint again. turns out most people, including on placebo, resolve the virus by day 11. And here, day 11 actually is something more like day 15 because patients appeared in the study on average four days after symptom onset. So um, that's pretty long, and we know that from CDC guidance, which says if you feel sick, quarantine for 14 days. Most people resolve it. But it's a disease of outliers, and a few people don't uh, clear the virus themselves and and have persistent symptoms and show up to the hospital. So a better metric for viral uh, load, we think, would be this idea of those who have persistent high viral load, or even using it day three or day seven would be much more meaningful. That was Dave Ricks, Eli Lilly, Chairman and CEO. So good to catch up with him. And Jason, really getting into the weeds for us there when it comes to understanding the efficacy of COVID-19 treatments. Definitely another step forward as we await for a vaccine. Yeah, a step in a long road, that's Mm. for sure. We also know it's been tough across the business world. The founder and CEO of Noonday Collection, she caught up with us and talked about how even after some of the darkest days in that company's history, they're actually doing better than ever. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So we're bringing you some of the highlights of our daily broadcast and podcast, and that included definitely a friend of our show, Jason's, who we talked with back in March, caught up with her again this week, Jessica Honiger, founder and CEO at Noonday Collection. They work with entrepreneurs, artisans all around the globe. It's all about providing female-led and women-oriented businesses some help. And she pivoted and made it work better than ever before, but it didn't feel that way seven months ago. When we spoke in March, I thought it was the beginning of the end of Noonday after building a decade-long company. But we 
crashed in March, and then we quickly rallied back, and we are back on track with our sales projections, meeting what our original projections were pre-COVID. Wow. How'd you do that? So tell us about that (laughs) moment. I mean, tell us what happened. Tell us about the moment when it looked, sorry to take you back there, but like when it looked the darkest, what was going on? Well, when it looked the darkest, we are built around women physically gathering and inviting women yeah. into their homes. So we had thousands of those in-person gatherings scheduled in March, and those all quickly canceled. So obviously our March revenue plummeted, but we quickly pivoted to online businesses. So we empowered all of our entrepreneurs, our Noonday Collection ambassadors who are creating a marketplace for our artists and businesses that we work with around the globe to run online businesses. We pivoted to do gather for good trunk shows where it would be a give back to anyone who was impacted by COVID-19 in their communities. And so these women rallied. And I've always believed that women on a mission are unstoppable, but that was proved correct because we rallied and we, three months later in July, had our biggest July in 10 years. So it's it's been very humbling, but I have to say it is because our business model is not dependent upon brick and mortar stores. We are dependent upon women who are at home and who need to earn income from their homes. And that ended up being a really good thing in a global pandemic. But one thing I wonder too, and Jason and I have talked to a lot of CEOs, leaders of small, medium, large companies. And a lot of what happened because of the pandemic is things that they were planning to do, but all of a sudden they had to do it much more quickly because of the pandemic. And a lot of it was a pivot to digital. You know, you guys were online, right? And you had a business online, but I'm guessing that everything, as you said, kind of ramped up. We were online, but really about 10 or 15% of our sales were e-commerce based Mm -hmm. and our social entrepreneurs, our Noonday Collection ambassadors, their primary way they were running their business in their local context was to go into other women's homes where women would gather their community and sell the product. So now that homes were no longer open, we opened up Zoom shows and we opened up Facebook and other digital platforms and People wanted to rally. I think people more than ever wanted to do something good. They wanted to use their purchasing dollars for good. And this being a global pandemic, our customer base is really cares about the globe. And I think that really showed during the last few months. And so, and we're going to talk about uh, in a minute. Uh, talk more in a minute about sort of what you've seen across your global network too, um, Jessica, because obviously you have a, a window far beyond even uh, what we do here at, in this country. But I, I do want to ask you, like, did, did the did you have to change the economics for your ambassadors at all owing to this? Or were you able to just sort of carry over effectively the same business model, but just sort of keep it online? It was the same business model, the same commission structure. We did some things to incent them to ask other women to launch their own businesses because we realized that people were needing additional income in a very flexible environment, and that is what Noonday Collection offers. But the only economics that really changed about our business is we canceled a ton of our international travel, as you can imagine. Yeah, 
and so and then in person conferences and and all of those things. So our actual profitability increased this year because of all our expenses that are normal are now not there anymore. I believe that we are actually going to have our strongest year ever in 2021 because as we begin to gather again, women now know how to run a digital business and how to reach outside of just their local contacts. So now they have become highly attuned at how to do email campaigns and how to harness all of the different digital platforms to gather people and run their business that way. But I do believe there is a day when people are going to gather in person again. And that's Noonday Collection founder and CEO Jessica Honiger back with us. Uh, She's doing incredibly important work. And what a seven months it's been for her, Carol. Yeah, I love her optimism. And she's right. We're social creatures. We're all going to be gathering again real soon. All right, still to come? Even if you want to distribute money, money like a socialist, you've got to first collect money like a capitalist. Operation Hope's founder and CEO John Hope Bryant with a reality check on racism. He's got a new book. It's called Up From Nothing. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So Jason, common themes through many of our interviews throughout the week on our daily radio show continue to be about the two pandemics facing our country. We've talked about this a lot, the virus, of course, and then racial injustice. And one voice that's been a guiding light for us, especially on that, is John Hope Bryant. He's founder, chairman, and CEO of the Atlanta-based global nonprofit Operation Hope. He created that in the aftermath of the 1992 LA riots. I mean, every time we talk to him, we just love it. He's also got a new book out. He does. It's called Up From Nothing, and he reminds us that all of this is intertwined, that so much of what we're facing is ultimately economic, but also intensely personal, Mm. also intensely historical in many ways. And I know every time you and I talk to him, we're (laughs) madly scribbling down the things that he's saying because he spends a lot of his time thinking, how do I communicate this? I know we constantly are messaging back and forth. I mean, you're right. I'm furiously taking notes. He reminds us that, and this is one of the things he said that stayed with me, racism is a levy on everyone's prosperity. I mean, you just really have to sit with that and think about it. And remember, we caught up with him back in early June. It was just as the world was reeling. We were stuck, of course, in the middle of the virus. We were also, of course, shocked by the brutal police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. So here we were four months later, and we had to check in with him again. America's founder, Heart Button. Um, You know, you can say you like what the protesters are doing or you don't like what the protesters are doing. But what you absolutely have to say is, my God, they have heart. Um, and you can say you don't like what's happening with uh, some of this candidate's supporters or that candidate's supporters. But, my God, do we have an active democracy. And if this had happened in China, you'd disappear. If this had happened in Russia, you'd disappear. So, in the, so that's, that's in the, it's sort of in the larger scheme of things. And then specifically, I, I like that when this whole thing hit, I got a call from this administration's Treasury Department, who I actually, I actually admire the Treasury Department. I have some problems with the other parts of the government, uh, respectfully stated. But the, the Secretary of the Treasury, they called and said, John, we need help. Uh, we want to help small businesses. And so I helped them design parts of the PPP program in a week. 
Um, and now, of course, not, we now know that 96% of all black businesses don't have an employee. They, they didn't have the banker with a bank teller. They didn't have the bank relationship to get in line to get the money. And that, that's another problem we now have to solve. But I like that, that it was one government. It may have been for two weeks, but it wasn't Republican <laughs> right. and Democrat. It was for, for two weeks. It was one America. <laughs> yeah. And I like the fact that you have all these CEOs stepping up because the government leadership is unclear. And markets hate clouds, as you know at Bloomberg. And you have these CEOs stepping up saying, knock it off, America. Let's stand up. And they're making commitments. I mean, real money. Uh, some of it's PR. But most of it is real commitments and real money. CEO of Walmart, real dude. CEO of PayPal, real dude. You know, ladies and men, uh, stepping up and, and doing real stuff because 90% of all jobs come from the private sector and 100% of legitimate wealth comes from the free enterprise system. So, you, so when they step up, it reminds me of the civil rights movement. Uh, it reminds me of what happened and we had our last, what I call the second reconstruction. This is, my opinion, the third reconstruction, which is why this book I've got out now, Up From Nothing, is so important for this moment, getting our minds right. We need solutions that are larger than the problems that we seek. Mm. We need and, solutions. And, John, you know, I, I'm glad you brought up the book because the timing is perfect in many ways because I think we needed to be reminded – in this pandemic, it's a moment of reflection for sure. And obviously the dueling pandemics that, that we've all talked about in this national and long overdue reckoning uh, about our history and, and some systemic inequalities. But one of the things you remind us about in the book is that you can reflect, but then you gotta go do it. You gotta get after it. And, and I do wonder sort of what you learned about or sort of relearned as you were putting this book together along those lines of kind of getting after it. I learned that my gut instinct was correct on this, that uh, even if you want to distribute money, money like a socialist, you've got to first collect money like a capitalist. Um, I, I learned that this country was made from poor people, struggling immigrants from all places and races. And people today forget the, these, these, yes, white, mostly white immigrants were, were not allowed into the office buildings and they were not given business cards and salaries. And the last major protest we had uh, like this was 100 years ago plus, which was the, the precursor to the New Deal. And these were all white people back then. I mean, folks protesting. I mean, the protest today looked like uh, uh, kindergarten compared to what was going on in the early 1900s by all white or new immigrants. And then they were allowed to come in to the economy and they got the New Deal. And then later on, it was the New Marshall Plan. And these were government initiatives in used to in, invest, not give away, invest in the population, which then created economic return for the country and a sense of fair play. So I was reminded that we really, that, that we are our worst enemy and our best asset. Everybody wants to be an American, but Americans. But what's wrong now is our mindset. Mm. What's, what, what's, what's wrong now is that we, we're now pitted against each other. This is ridiculous. This only benefits China and Russia, and China and Russia who want to be us. It's crazy that we've got citizen against citizen, against citizen, Republicans against Democrats, a black against white, rich against poor, capitalists against working class. What kind of crazy mess is this? The, the, the Bible says a house divided cannot stand. That's biblical. And, and it's also common sense. 
one of the things that I kept repeating after our conversation with you back in June was this whole idea of having a seat at the table. And after George Floyd and the protests, because I think you were having conversations with people about let's do this calmly. And and people were coming to you saying, well, wait a minute, John, it's easy for you to say you have a seat at the table. We don't. And so yeah. this is how we get noticed. Are we going to get to make sure that everybody has a seat at the table? Are you seeing any signs of progress along those lines? Yes, I think that people, the leaders I'm talking to now, get that this time is different. You know, this happens every 100 years or so. You know, 18, sorry, 1760 to 1780, 1850 to 1870, uh, uh, 1950 to 1970. We've killed the last two great leaders, by the way, who tried to push this innovation, Lincoln and Dr. King. Uh, this is, to me, a third reconstruction um, that's going to last for about 10 years. And I think that it's also happened 30 years early. This shouldn't have happened. This should have happened you know, 30, 40 years from now. Mm. But people, people are tired. They're tired of kicking the can down the road. And I think God has a sense of humor. He gave us a global health pandemic, worse than 100 years, an economic crisis, and a 400-year-old social justice reckoning, and told us all basically to knock it off. On top of that, an environmental crisis. I think we've got a chance for a reset here. We've got to get our minds back in the game. We've got too many people on it with a surviving mindset. That, mean, that tends to make you focus on me and not we, our politicians, all the way down to our protesters. I, I told some of the protesters who, who, who I said, look, I understand your pain. I'm with you. But, you, but blaming your neighbor doesn't make you any wealthier. <laughs> and, and anger is not a strategy. We've got to get you from the, suite, from the streets into the suites. The politicians can't keep cutting us up and dicing us, and it's spreading us because a house divided cannot stand. So we need to move back to the theme that made us who we are, that made Bloomberg what it is, which is a winning mentality. And a winner believed they were a winner before they won anything. This is fundamental, and that comes from the way you were raised, the ways you were cultured, the, the way you were nurtured. We need hunters <laughs> more than we need skinners and cooks. <laughs> we need winners build things more than we need and we can't have the survivors outnumber the winners and thrivers the middle class is fantastic but they we need things for them to do which is what the winners build so that they can sustain so that's john hope bryant founder chairman and ceo of the nonprofit operation hope author of the new book up from nothing the untold story of how we and in parentheses all succeed that full conversation check it out it's on our podcast feed Well, and I love it, too, because he ended up our conversation talking about my hometown, Atlanta. Mm. I obviously have a lot of affinity for it, as does he. And he understands the weight that folks in that city feel because of the lineage of civil rights all the way back to Dr. King and everything that's happened in the interim. You think about the late John Lewis and Good Trouble and all the things that he talked about. But you also understand, and John Hope Bryant really brings this home, this notion that as I said before, this is an economic story and right. that it's not black, it's not white, it's green in many ways. We've heard John Hope Bryant say that. He said it again to us uh, this time around. And it's an important thing to remember. Well, and he said, you know, the leaders that he's talking to, they are truly saying it's different this time around. He calls it the third reconstruction. He says it's going to probably last for 10 years. And he, you know, kind of took us back in history, right, Jason? That he said about every 100 years, we kind of have this kind of moment. He said this one came 30 years earlier. Um, but he just said, listen, we've got to get 
people, everybody. We've got to get them up from the streets to the suites, meaning the executive suites, the C-suites. We've got to make sure that everybody has a seat at the table. So I really feel like every time we talk with him, I do have some hope that maybe we are actually going to make a, make a difference, right? That's going to last forever. And that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. More ahead in our next hour, including we check in with our colleague David Rubenstein, host of Peer-to-Peer Conversations on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV. We're going to talk about leadership past and present and also see what's on his reading list. Exactly. Not a streamer, more Mm -hmm. of a reader. And uh, (laughs) listen, if he's reading it, you want to check it out. Plus, Rebel Girl CEO Jess Wolf, another one of our favorite conversations. She's also got a new book, 100 Immigrant Women Who Changed the World, Rebel Girls. We both got them, Carol. Yeah, we definitely do. Also, let's not forget Boom Technologies. They've got a supersonic jet. They're trying to usher in a new wave of super fast air travel. This is Bloomberg. Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Plenty ahead for you in this hour, the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including checking in with an actress who's now in charge of all the actors, Carol. We're talking about <laughs> Gabrielle Carteris. Get ready, all you 90210 fans. Also, there is no such thing as real presidential power. It's the ability to persuade people. Our conversation with Carlisle Group co-founder and co-executive chairman David Rubenstein, also our colleague, he's the host of Peer-to-Peer Conversations on Bloomberg Radio and TV, talking about his new book and leadership in a time of crisis. But we begin this hour with big news in the world of aviation and superfast air travel. It's a big week for the startup Boom Technology. They unveiled a supersonic jet this week, writing about it as only he can do. Bloomberg Business Week feature writer and New York Times bestselling author Ashley Vance. He's host of Hello World. He's also author of Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the quest for a fantastic future. Check it out. There's this company in Colorado called Boom. Um, they've been at it for a few years, but now they're about to unveil their first supersonic plane. Uh, you know, there's some caveats with this one. This this first one that's going to be unveiled is essentially a, a test plane. The pilots are going to take out and put through the paces with the hopes of getting to a commercial supersonic plane in the next few years. But, you know, this is the first company to do something like this in a long, long time. All right. So we know the Concorde was so last year or so last several years ago. So how is this different? Like, what I thought we were kind of over supersonic, you know, jet flights, um, but obviously we're not. So what is it? How is it different? Why does it have the opportunity to maybe change, you know, air travel, especially if you think about for business people once we get through the pandemic? Yeah, well, they, you know, so the Concorde stopped flying in 2003 um, for a number of reasons, but the biggest one of which was that it just didn't make enough money. Mm. Uh, there wasn't enough interest from passengers. And so, so anyway, boom, they have this thesis that, that as time has passed, you know, they can get over a lot of the shortcomings that, that face the Concorde. And so, so the first one is they're making this plane out of carbon fiber instead of aluminum, which wasn't really possible back when the, the Concorde was first being designed. And so it's going to be lighter, faster, more fuel efficient. Also, the engine technology has come a really long way since the Concorde was designed. And so, again, the new engines are much more fuel efficient. And so all this adds up to you can fly the plane more cheaply than you used to be able to do. And you can go on many, many more routes uh, and go much longer distances, which opens up the market for this type of plane. And so, Ashley, frame this in the context of 
everything else we see going on more in, in terms of space, right? I mean, like we talk about that all the time. We talk with you and, and many of our colleagues about that. And obviously SpaceX was, was part of your work that you've done or has been part of the work that you've done around Elon Musk and, and his vision for that. This is a, a little bit more, I'm going to say it, down to earth. And yet <laughs> it, it does feel like a lot of the technological advances this guy is drawing on are coming from this sort of move to space, right? Yeah, I mean, all this stuff, plays off each other you know we're in this this time when materials have advanced a lot things like electric motors and batteries and stuff have come a long way software more than anything has come a really long way so it's opening up these new possibilities you're totally right there's there's been way more attention and investment in like new rockets and satellites and all that stuff but you know if you're the average person um this probably hits a lot closer to home. I think we can all appreciate the idea of like a shorter, faster, more comfortable flight more than going to Mars probably. And so, so, you know, this one feels right. Yeah. Yeah. If you think about all the leaders who are just probably like, yeah, okay, sign me up. So, all right, Ashley, in your story, you say the only thing holding boom back, getting this supersonic jet out there is well, reality. I mean, it's going to be expensive. You've got to get regulators on board. I mean, these are big hurdles, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the funny things when I was reporting the story that I guess I hadn't thought about as much, you know, we were just talking about the rockets. Lately, rocket companies have been taking about 6 to 8 years to get a a new rocket from a blueprint to launching into orbit, um, this plane. So you know, if in the best case scenario, they would actually be able to fly the new commercial airliner called Overture in 2029. And so you know, because you're taking people instead of satellites, and, and so much is at risk. This is a really involved process. Um, that said, you know, I've been following this company since it started a few years ago, and they've made way more progress than anyone else who's tried to do it so far, and, and they have some pretty wealthy backers behind them. Who is this guy, Blake Schultz? I mean, he's a young guy, right? Yeah, he's 39. Uh, I think he turns 40 in a few weeks. He's, he's like, not who you would expect to be a, a plane CEO. He uh, came from, yeah, he was essentially, like, in the online advertising world. He used to work at Amazon, and then he did a startup that he sold to Groupon, and so he's kind of like a software guy, um, on the, again, on the ad side of things, who he has flown his own plane since he was a, a kid and just wanted to <laughs> just decided he was going to yeah. go make a supersonic plane. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of where this comes from. It's just that love of aviation. And that was Bloomberg Business Week's Ashley Vance, author and journalist who's always looking around the corner, host of Hello World. And as you said, he really tells stories like no one else can. Carol, I love catching <laughs> up with him. Yeah, check out that entire story as well as pictures and video of Boom's Jet. That's online at Bloomberg.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week from bringing back super fast air travel to getting members of the Screen Actors Guild back to work. We check in with the president of SAG AFTRA. We're talking about Andrea from 90210. Yep, she's in charge of all the actors. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, Carol, everyone's keeping an eye on Hollywood for sure. We've all been nesting at home and watching lots of shows, but ultimately they got to make more of them. So a great person to check in with, Gabrielle Cartera. She's the president of SAG-AFTRA and also she played Andrea on 90210. So lots to talk with her about. She did indeed, Jason. I know you were a fan. And I got to say, though, like all of us, her world because of the virus was turned upside down. The world has been really crazy. You know, it's uh 
my world is all of our worlds, and we are definitely feeling the pandemic, COVID-19, and its effects on our industry. So it's been a it's been a challenging time, a real challenging time. But I I do believe we'll get through it. So that's that's my hope. <laughs> yeah. And so you know, Gabrielle, in in your world in your business, I mean, our mm-hmm. understanding is that. It, everything just ground to a halt you know during most yeah. of this pandemic like where are we now in terms of any sort of restart you know we've talked to some of your sort of colleagues in, in the acting and, and directing profession here in New York City as they've been sort of getting back to work what is mm-hmm. it like more broadly and, and maybe even more specifically there at the the heart of it all in Los Angeles well, I would say the heart of it is not just L.A. Actually, the heart of it is probably now being such a, I always call it the movable feast. Our industry yeah. is everywhere now. But, um, you know, uh, first, we were the first really industry to shut down when the pandemic hit. You know, March 15th, everything shut down, and our business was the first one to shut down. And our business was the one where, you know, from Washington down, people were saying, you know, now that you're at home and you're, you know, being sequestered at home, Please, you know, watch all those Netflix shows that you haven't seen. Watch, you know, stream the new shows. Everybody was depending on our our workers, our members. You know, the broadcasters, journalists are the ones who are giving news day in and day out to inform not just, you know, America, but on a global level. So it's, you know, they, they said to everybody, you know, watch and see what's going on. But most of our work, other than a few of our members, actually it's ground to a halt. Mm. And, um, and that was devastating it was really just like for everybody else it was just like the ground was removed from underneath us that being said the minute it happened we started working really closely with you know the other unions uh, dga iotc teamsters as well as you know the amptp which are employers and we started putting together um working with scientists and epidemiologists and doctors you know what is it that we can do to put together some kind of protocol or guidelines so we can get people back to work in the safest way possible we've literally been working every day including weekends for the last like five six months and Mm. came together finally with protocols that we officially released um on the i think it was like the september 21st and um, and now people are starting to go back to work. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, as we're ebbing and flowing back in, because, you know, we're seeing, you know, numbers spike in certain mm-hmm. places, but the protections that we've put in place to make it a safer way back to work, I'm hoping it keeps the industry open and we're able to move forward. But it's been, um, it's really just been an interesting and painful experience to see yeah. so many people struggling. I mean, people in food lines, right. you know, actors, people think that, you know, it's all high pros. But a lot of our, our members are really the day in and day out journeymen of this industry. And they depend on those jobs. And it's been really, uh, it's been really a, a hard road. And so, Gabrielle, I know that there were many probably sticking points and and. and tricky things mm. along the way, but what really sticks out to you? I mean, what was the thing that once you solved it, you felt like, all right, we're, we're going to get this done. We've got a broad right. agreement on, on sort of everybody being safe and healthy. Well, first of all, everybody agreed when we started, we wanted to base everything on facts, right? It had to be on the science, not just on how you felt. So we, working with the epidemiologists, the doctors, what we really recognized, the three vital things that we had to make sure happened. We got testing, 
on a regular basis. We have tracing because we want to know if something, you know, where to occur, where it's coming from. And then, of course, we have social distancing. We created zones where um, actors who, unlike, you know, or dancers or singers, any of our members, they don't get to wear PPE when they work unless right. they're doing a hospital scene, right? They right. can't be like some of the crew can wear masks all the time. So we, we actually went and created zones. And so we're, actors are in the zone A uh, area where nobody can come in and out of that area unless they are also a part of that zone. And that's, you know, uh, that testing takes place three times a week. Mm. So we really have found, and what's helped us with that, it's been really interesting. I just got off a call. There actually have been a couple of shows where there was one in particular that um, I had been talking to somebody where they literally had been tested. It was one of the leads. Just before they came on set, if they found out that that person had COVID-19, stopped that person from going on set and therefore protected the rest of the crew and the other uh, performers so that they can continue performing and working so they didn't have to shut the set down. So that was, for us, we had to... We had to find an agreement, and again, it was really important that we didn't just do it as SAG-AFTRA, but that we did it with everybody. Right. Because if, if people don't all buy into it, then you can't, you know, I can say it a million times, look, you have to test, and they're going to say, no, I don't. You know, but if we, we all come to this agreement together, it actually makes it a standard that we all follow. Right. And it's been really, thus far, I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that we've been able to stop some of the spreading that could have occurred, and that's closed down. There is a return to work agreement uh, that the union has negotiated. And Gabrielle, and you know this better than we do, you negotiate mm-hmm. something and not everyone is always happy uh, with it. And so as we've uh, talked to folks, one of the things that has come up is that um, the premiums are going to have to go up in the health plan and that working spouses mm-hmm. are no longer covered. What sort of feedback have you gotten and, and what are you saying back to your members as they do weigh in on this deal? Well, working spouses are actually still covered. Oh, they are. It depends on if, unless they are covered by their, uh, at their work, you know, for instance, my husband has a job. If he's covered there, then uh, he would take that as his primary. But um, yeah, you know what? Unlike, not unlike what's going on in our country, we're seeing it everywhere. The pandemic has actually, uh, you know, has really been devastating in terms of health care. So that's Gabrielle Carteris, president of SAG-AFTRA. She's leading the way back, Jason, for actors and members of the Screen Actors Guild. It's not easy. And as we just heard, she talked about something we, too, have spent a lot of time on amid the health crisis, and that is the lack of health care or equal health care for many Americans. It continues to be one of the nation's chronic problems. Absolutely. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. And speaking of problems, problems when it comes to leadership. We're all facing them. What a difficult time. David Rubenstein, he is, of course, co-founder, co-executive chairman of the Carlisle Group, also our colleague here at Bloomberg. He weighs in on leadership. This is Bloomberg. Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So, Carol, it's fun when people that you've covered for a long time sort of come into the family, as it Mm -hmm. were. And that's the case with (laughs) David Rubenstein, well-known in the private equity world, but now really our colleague of a sort at Bloomberg. He's the host of Peer-to-Peer Conversations, and we were lucky to catch up with him. He's got a new book out, and he's got some takes on leadership. Everybody has their own style of leadership. Napoleon 
seem to do reasonably well without, I imagine, being that humble. Um, and I guess Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan and, uh, you know, a um, whole bunch of other people uh, we could cite. Julius Caesar probably weren't that humble. Douglas MacArthur probably wasn't that humble. Some people just have a different style. In my book, I tended to talk to people who had more humility, and it's a quality that I admire. And you also had a book out last year that was about uh, that, where you talked with master uh, historians about many uh, American presidents. As you have seen more modern American presidents, maybe including the the current occupant, uh, what did you take away for the from specifically around presidential leadership, David? Well, presidential leadership is an interesting phenomenon. A very good uh, presidential historian, Richard Neustadt. Uh, who advised President Kennedy, said there is no such thing as real presidential power. It's the ability to persuade people. Mm. That's what a president has, the very limited powers, really. And that's what you really need, the ability to persuade people. And if you can persuade people of your, your right, then you can have some power. Um, I'd say that the job is really difficult today in this sense. Um, when I worked in the White House for President Carter, the evening news was 15 minutes at night. And then you watch the Washington Post or the New York Times the next morning. There was no Internet. There was no constant cable TV, um, no social media, none of this stuff. And so it was a different game. Today, it's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week kind of uh, environment. It's not easy to do this. And President Carter, my former boss, said that he felt at a certain age probably um, it's, it's much tougher today. Yeah. He, he would say, I think he said over the age of, I think he said 70. But um, so, you know, as somebody who's now 71, I would say, well, I feel as good as I felt when I was 70, but not as good as I feel when I was 60 or 50. So I recognize it's, uh, you know, there's some challenges. I I wouldn't wish this job on anybody who really wasn't a workaholic and who really didn't have pretty good health. So, David, you mentioned your work in the Carter administration. I've heard you talk about that over the years. And I do wonder, knowing the White House from the inside and then also knowing the workings of government as well as you do, having been a resident of the capital city, having grown up uh, not too far away in Baltimore, I, I wonder what you make of this current moment of, um, shall we say, gridlock when it comes to fixing the economy, especially in the midst of this pandemic, knowing the levers that work. Were you surprised or are you surprised that we just can't get anything done when it comes to the fiscal side of this equation? I think what is going on is that uh, the Democrats, by and large, um, are not interested in giving the Republicans credit for something that might go through or the administration. And the Republicans are afraid that Democrats will take credit for it. So right now they've been a standoff. Um, the Secretary of Treasury was negotiating something. It seems to be at a standstill now. But, you know, as we know, in Washington, D.C., things change on a dime very quickly. So um, whatever um, was said today could be changed tomorrow. Uh, there's no doubt in the mind of anybody in Congress that there will be a stimulus bill. Um, everyone knows that there is a need for it. The, 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 the chairman of the Fed pretty much said we need to have it yeah. earlier today. The only issue is, is it before the election or after the election? And if the stock market had gone down by 2,000 points after the announcement today, I suspect you'd have a stimulus negotiation. It didn't go down by that much to upset everything. So I suspect that, uh, you know, it, it, it could happen. But right now, it'll happen, in my view, before the end of the year. It's just not clear whether it's going to happen in the next 30 days or next 60 days.
David, we talked about your new book that's out that's called How to Lead. You're, you have another book that you did that's called The American Story, Conversations with Master Historians. I do wonder, as we talk about the breakdown uh, in, what, you know, in terms of politics, certainly down in Washington, you know, why is it always about now, you know, you're going to get credit, I want credit, you know, this is what we're thinking about, rather than thinking about, okay, what's a great policy for our country, America? Well, um, this isn't new. Um, this has been going on for several thousand years. People like credit in the political world, so I wouldn't say it's new. I would say what is relatively new over the last 20 years or so compared to when I was in Congress uh, briefly in the 70s and before is that there's no sense of bipartisanship. It used to be that no major legislation would pass unless it was bipartisan. That's David Rubenstein, host of Peer-to-Peer Conversations, one of our colleagues right here on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV. He's also co-founder and co-executive chairman of Carlisle Group. And Jason, there he was talking about bipartisan politics, really a thing of the past. And we saw that play out a lot this week when it came to another round of virus relief. It just couldn't happen. Yeah questions of leadership abound that's for sure still to come it's more important than ever for us to tackle gender disparaging issues once and for all we look at the need for a more diverse series of voices in media we check in with the ceo of rebel girls this is bloomberg for those fortunate enough to help the person who has always been their hero, find the care guides you need to help at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So Jason, we had a bit of a theme this past week of successful women working to help others and other girls and women succeed as well. And that included our chat with Jess Wolf. She's CEO of the Edutainment Company. Yes, it is a word. We're talking about rebel girls. She had that up. She's on a mission to empower girls around the globe through podcast books and telling the inspirational stories of women, something she says is a top priority. It's more important than ever for us to tackle gender disparaging issues once and for all. Um, if you still look at the landscape today, um, a third is kind of the number you want to look at. A third of uh, children's books characters are female. A third of children's TV show characters are female. Less than a third of podcast hosts are female. And if you look at uh, the percentage of female and non-white, it's about between 5 and 10% across those three different dimensions. So it's time. It's time to yeah. showcase really diverse voices and characters and role models for girls so they grow up with the same confidence that boys do. I have to say, Jason and I, okay, are a little obsessed by a new Netflix series called Away, and we have yet to talk about how it all ended. But what's interesting about it is, first of all, the commander is a woman, and there's diversity, and there's, you know, just all kinds of individuals that are much more representative of society. And I feel like we have to get get to a place, Jess, and you talk about multi-platforms, you know, where we really represent what's going on to show, especially for when it comes to girls and like women, what like that they are as much a part of this world and can do truly anything. But if we don't show it, then it's going to be more difficult to get there. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And... You know, we're trying to push the boundaries Mm -hmm. in terms of representation, in terms of diversity, and in terms of just showcasing truly remarkable women that have done extraordinary things. Uh, We started with 
100 women across geography, across history, across field of excellence. We're now up to 300 women who we've told the stories. And um, our latest 100 women that we're showcasing, in addition to being extraordinary, brilliant women, also happen to be immigrants. And we're sharing their stories of how they moved from one country to another and then contributed what they did to the world. I do sort of wonder why now for, I mean, it's a little bit obvious, but I want you to say it anyway, like why now for immigrant, for women who are immigrants? Yeah, well, it it should have been a long time ago, but it hasn't been done yet. So that's why we're doing it now. But we really want to foster cross-cultural friendships. We want to combat xenophobia. We want to build awareness and acceptance for other cultures in the minds of these young girls. Um, and, and today's environment just showcases how that's ever more important for us to really foster these cross-cultural friendships and, and, and combat xenophobia. And in between the time we started our last conversation and now, I've already gotten a text, uh, Jess, from my mom down in Atlanta who sent me a picture of one of your books that a friend of hers, Lisa Carvalho, shout out Lisa, uh, gave her to read to my now two-and-a-half-year-old daughter when she visits. So it's already on the shelf, so you'll be happy to know that it's already, it's already, it. in, it's already <laughs> in the mix. So you're well represented. So um, I got to ask you, you know, we, we were alluding to this on the way out of the last segment. You know, this notion of representation is such an important one. And I do wonder, knowing media as well as you do, like where sort of the blockages here? Like who who's making the decisions and making candidly sort of the wrong decisions that is keeping that one third number where it is? You know, I think if we look historically – uh, look at the traditional media that, you know, I grew up with, you grew up with. It was princesses waiting to be rescued by princes, right? And the princesses all looked a certain way and they were all pretty helpless and they needed princes who also looked a certain way to come and rescue them. And I think that's just the background of what we're up against where throughout history, that's kind of what we portrayed in terms of gender roles and in terms of what beauty looked like and what you know, beautiful people we should try and aspire to be in X and Y, right? And so it's up to us now today who are creating media to be extraordinarily intentional about who we showcase, what characters we create, and how do we actually uh, create media for children. I mean, for adults too, but let's start with the next generation that is representative of, of what we look like and who we are as, as global citizens right now. And so if you think about the traditional princesses and only 19% of children's books have female char- characters who have a job, right? Compared to 81% of children's books that have male characters that have a job or career ambitions, it's, it's just up to everyone now to change things. Yeah, I agree. So, where would you like to see the needle pushed a little bit more? Is it entertainment world? Is it brands and businesses? I mean, it's probably all of the above, but who do you think could really do make a, make a change that would really substantially change how girls kind of look at themselves and their roles in society? Absolutely. Uh, so I think it's universal. Um, I think it's across television. I think it's across children's books. I think it's across podcasts. I think it's also across dolls um, and, and how girls play and, and, and should girls just play house 
you know, or, or are there ways to evolve the, the products that girls play with and whatnot? And I think if everyone thinks about the characters they put forward and do they represent society and what are the values that they are conveying in those characters, in those stories, in those products, we'll get to a much, much better place as a society. You know, Jess, you mentioned podcasts a couple times. I'm, I'm intrigued by that because it's such a booming uh, market, and it is. it feels like somewhat wide open at this point. What have you seen? Like, what are the things you're listening to that you feel like, all right, well, that's a really good example of either a different sort of voice or an approach that other people should replicate or could follow from a role modeling perspective? Well, I'm going to say, you know, the Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls podcast. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just set you, I just teed we, that up for you, yeah, didn't I? Thank you, you very totally much, Jason. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you why it's special. Uh, we take the stories of these remarkable women and we turn them into snackable 20-minute episodes that are story, they're, they're fairy tale-like stories. And we take these girls through the journey of RBG, for instance or Oprah, or Michelle Obama, or Josephine Baker, and we tell their stories as who they were as girls. So girls can relate to these remarkable women as girls and how they became the women that did the things that they did, Mm. right? And so for us, it is a wide open space right there because there's very little programming for girls out there. And the programming for girls tends to be fictional. So we take a nonfiction story and turn it into a fairy tale and make it super entertaining and then get an equally impressive narrator to host that story, to lend her voice to the story of the woman she's telling. And that's kind of what we think is, is very unique out there and in uh, our way in the audio world to bring more diverse stories to life. So what's next for you? Yeah. So more. Mm. More stories, more women, more diversity. We have our newest book, 100 Immigrant Women Who Changed the World, coming out next week. Uh, We also have a corresponding podcast from stories from the book on immigration. Uh, We are working on a television show right now. We're working on um, a Broadway show right now. We're working on a digital app right now. So we think there's a lot more formats for storytelling that we can bring to the world. And do you feel like, Jess, and we sort of alluded to the, to this at the top of the conversation, that there is, and maybe I'm just trying to end on a little bit of an optimistic note, but you know, even the, the outpouring of support, especially I think from young women and girls around um, the death of RBG, like, did feel different a, a little bit here in 2020 and had a sense of urgency around it. Did you feel that? Do you feel that happening right now? Oh my gosh, yes. We had thousands and thousands of people tag us on Instagram and Facebook after RBG passed, um, reading their girls the story of RBG from our book and listening to the story of RBG in our podcast. And that communal collective sharing of sadness and the importance of her legacy and her story and passing that on to generations. And so I, I do absolutely think we felt this community rallying around who she was and what she stood for. And that's Rebel Girls CEO Jess Wolf. And you heard her talk there about little girls. And as someone Mm. who has a little girl, (laughs) it really hit my heart when she talked about that. And listen, you and I are both, we're raising Rebel Girls in the best possible way. 
We certainly are. And I got to say, she's also that best selling series for children, Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. From what I understand, your daughter Alice, thanks to her grandmother, your mom, has one of those books. She does indeed. Well, that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio and a notable one. It's my last show, Kara. I can't even imagine doing this without you. It's just, it's not going to be the same. I'm going to miss you. You're not leaving the community. You're not leaving the Bloomberg family. You're just going to be in a different part of it. Absolutely. Check me out on Bloomberg Quick Take. That is launching on streaming on November 9th. I'll still be around, Carol. You can't get rid of me that easily. Good. I don't want to get rid of you. (laughs) And listen, don't forget to our extra podcast. Ken Hicks, uh, Jason and I talked to him. He's chairman, president, and CEO of Academy Sports and Outdoors. They were taken public roughly about a week ago by the private equity firm KKR. He's got an impressive retail background. So we got to talk to him about the virus impact and really the state of retail. And don't forget, the daily Bloomberg Business Week show starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. It's also on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And Bloomberg Business Week, it's available on newsstands now. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you next week. Well, I'll see you next week. But Jason, I know I'm going to see you around Bloomberg headquarters. Thanks so much. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.